This is The First Stop, a podcast with the aim of exploring the minds of artists in and around New Haven. I'm your host, David Livingston, an artist and educator at University of New Haven. In this episode, we'll navigate the mind of New Haven-based artist Howard L. Yassin. The works discussed in this podcast can be found on our blog at firststopart.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at firststop.art. Howard is fascinated by the materials, shards, fragments, dead skin cells, Americans produce and discard. He's captivated by the way in which these objects reflect our current moment of mass production and consumption, a condition that allows us to throw away and forget objects of personal significance. In his artistic practice, he seeks to penetrate the material surface of these forgotten human byproducts, revealing the layers of cultural meaning and forensic data contained within them. Howard collects human hair, dryer lint, thrown out banana peels, among other things. We spend the bulk of this interview discussing Howard's sculptural installations of dryer lint, objects that are at once visceral and ephemeral, enigmatic and abject. Welcome to The First Stop, Howard. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about my work. I know that you've worked with a lot of different materials, and you're kind of a collector of things that are oftentimes thrown away or cast aside. I get the sense that your lint sculptures, which we should really describe because they're amazing, they're these sublime, large installations of just tons and tons of lint. And I get the sense that the material is very important to you. Absolutely. So much of my work begins with a material. Um, I, I select a material based on uh, some sort of visceral um, attraction to that, that material or something that I'm thinking about doing with that material that expresses an idea. Um, largely, I'm interested in a sort of abject relationship with um, using materials as, as a way to explore um, um, a relationship between one's body or the self, whether it be myself, my body, or spectators within an installation and, and that material and a, as a way to explore identity and awareness of self as well as space and, and the forms that I, I generate. And sometimes the form is, is simply loose and wild. And mm-hmm. um, so one installation, um, in Baltimore was um, lint suspended from the ceiling. I saw those. As well as on this ramp that you could walk up onto. And, and I was really excited when people actually were brave enough to walk in the lint and actually lift it and sort of pick things out of it because that was the idea. Um, so there's, I'm always interested in creating a playful relationship mm-hmm. with the material um, so that, it, I mean, it's already sort of 
off-putting. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I try to create um, a sense of fun about the material. Describe to me what you view as off-putting about the lint. I mean, I can put two and two together and think about, you know, it's discarded clothing and, you know, what to you is off-putting? Well, it's not as off-putting as some materials that Mm -hmm. I've worked with, Um, but I would say it's off-putting in that it's waste. Yes. Um, in that, um, th- first of all, I should also say that I collect two different types of lint. I categorize them. Interesting. Um, commercial lint from local drone, uh, laundromats um, here in New Haven. Um, I, I um, worked on a project um, a couple of years ago where I collected from 11 different laundromats over um, a 12-week period. Wow. And... What I am interested in with that particular collection is all of the stuff that's embedded in the lint. Yeah. Um, There's a lot more dirt, a lot more grime, and sort of grittiness about that material. You're talking industrial versus, like, residential or? Well, the commercial lint has much more um, information um, mm. residue about um, human beings in contrast to, and, and it's industrial as well as, as um, clothing, um, pieces of metal, um, things that you wouldn't expect to find in, in the material. I mean, fragments of, you know, little gl- glittering pieces of, of, of fabric residue, um, plastic, and, and you would think that some things wouldn't survive the dryers, and, right. and that's, that's interesting what, what actually does survive the heat of a dryer. But in contrast to domestic lint, which I also collect from individuals, and I've continued collecting, I, I have over 200 people who've um, contributed to that collection thus far. Wow. And it's, it's been a couple of years um, for both collections, but um, it's much more sanitized. And so what are they, in the industrial ones, what are they washing? Or the commercial ones, I should say, like, is it, it's like tablecloths with like an, a fork in it or something that's, that gets kind of caught up in Well, if you lint. think about it, uh, or when I have used a commercial laundromat, um, I've tended to take things that I wouldn't want to put in my, my um, washing machine and dryer at home. So a rug. Um, right. You know, it's more heavy things. Yes. Um, but also, I think because those laundromats tend to serve a wide number or a wide range of people, who some people are more fastidious about what they, you know, bring to yeah. the laundromat yeah. versus others. Um, I found sand in in the lint. Um, you know, the, the obvious things are hair. Um, yeah. And we can talk about that because Absolutely. I'm interested in DNA. Um, and that was one of the initial um, drivers for me to explore the DNA. But I'll, I'll get back to that. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I would definitely want to talk about that when you get to it. So, you know, there, there are all sorts of fragments of things, um, as I said, from bits of fabric to a child's underwear. Mm-hmm. Um, to other other clothing garments, um, uh, shards of information. That's that's the way I would describe it, and that's what that's what attracts me to it. Because um, when you start looking at neighborhoods um, where, or, or when I began to look mm-hmm. at the neighborhoods where I was collecting the dryer lid, 
I began to notice um, collections of things or groupings of, of things, um, accumulations. Um, there, were, there was a higher propensity of, of accumulation of things and similarities of things um, in, in commercial laundromats. But then in some neighborhoods, um, there was even less. So either those things were naturally a product of what happens through the process of um, you know, the, the drying, because the drying in, in, in commercial laundromats, or at least one, um, Top Cat is, is one laundromat um, in, in New Haven. Where, where precisely it's, is it's that? It's in Westville. It's in Westville. On, on okay. Whaley Avenue. Okay, cool. Um, every week I would go and um, they let me help actually extract the lint. And so it was this vacuum suction machine that was connected to all of the dryers and it was just sucking out all of the lint. And then I had to pull it out of this, this um, machine, which was you know, sticking your hand up, um, um, up a big dark hole. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and it's, it's fuzzy and you're just pulling stuff out in, 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 um, large wads. And of course there's dirt, um, and dust just falling out. Um, so it's, it's very dirty work, but there's, there's, there's also something cathartic about that process, um, I found that when I began to physically work with the lint, um, I recalled that experience. And so it, in a sense, there's something existential about it because it, it um, sort of grounds you in, in terms of, you know, who we are as human beings in right. a very contemporary industrial context. It sort of makes me think of almost an archaeological dig. It is. It is, know, especially you... when you start realizing what you find. So. And, and I'm always finding things when, I, when I'm um, binding the lint, which I was doing for a recent installation. I, I found that I, was, I kept finding materials that would fall out, and I would gather them as best I could and try not to, um, to throw things away. Um, in my studio afterward, I found that um, the, the floor was just caked with, with dust and dirt. Yeah. Um, and Unless there were, there were um, I, what I would save is the small fragments of, of plastic. And, and I just, I was always amazed at how much was embedded in the lint. Um, you know, the plastic, some t- there wasn't rubber or anything like that, but just hard um, pieces of jewelry, um, money, paper, um, just shards of information that reference other people's lives. Did you find anything valuable? Like, I mean, you say jewelry, was it valuable jewelry or kind of like throwaway? I, well, I didn't, I mean, I found pearl earrings. Yeah. I, I didn't, you know, try, I didn't so You weren't trying assess to sell them. them. Yeah, no, yeah, nothing them. that I, yeah. the, I wasn't trying, I mean, in gold jewelry, I, but I wasn't looking at them to assess whether or not um, one thing was more valuable than another. Um, I was more interested in what was left behind and, and. I was imagining who the owner was and how we can leave parts of ourselves behind um, as shards of information. As you said, like an archaeologist, years later, things that we lose um, reference this current moment in time. And I find it interesting that I'm finding these things that, that reference other people's existence. 
we think a lot these days, or some of us are thinking a lot about how wasteful we are as human beings and like how much stuff we produce and throw away. And it's, I wasn't like, oh, we have a problem producing too much lint from laundering our mm -hmm. clothes. And then I saw your work. I saw how much stuff is collected in the lint. It was just kind of mind boggling that just this act of washing produces that large an accumulation of stuff. Well, you know? It's so when I started working on this project and, and started thinking about what it is I'm, I'm interested in, I thought about the fact that lint and dryers are primarily a Western American mm -hmm. specifically form of cultural production. Um, yeah. And and the fact that I was finding all this residue, I mean, I, I should say that residue is something that I've been looking at for some time. Yes. Um, I've, I've worked on other projects, um, for instance, a couple of years ago in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. I worked on a project where I would walk around the city and pick up fragments of things that either people threw out the car or um, something, a remnant from an accident. But I was oh. interested in the very small things that were almost invisible. And so that's what I find to be um, similar with, with the dryer lint, because a lot of things, some things are large enough, you know, like a chain, a whole necklace. Yeah. Um, you know, I would imagine that it was left in a pocket or earring that, that um, somehow fell out of, um, I, I don't know if it, it, maybe it was in a pocket or something like that too. But yes, it, it is that all of these things reference cultural production I mean, when you think about the accumulation of the things that I'm finding, if I, I, could, I could extract all of the stuff that I'm finding, and that would reference um, where we are in the contemporary moment in terms of cultural waste and production. But I think it also references where we are in this moment of industrial um, society. Um, how um, America is, is separate or separated from the rest of the world and that we're the only country really that uses dryers as, as a way to speed life up. And in that mm -hmm. process, we lose track of things. We lose track of these, these small aspects of our lives. Um, wow. And we buy more. Right. We, we, we simply reproduce it. And the, and the dryer sort of, as is evidenced by all the lint that you found, it's sort of degrading clothing that we own faster in a way because it's, you know, right. it's damaging to the clothes. It's pulling off all this material. Whereas if we were inconvenienced by sort of air drying our clothes, they'd probably last longer in a way. You well, know? and ironically, I, I do own a dryer. But, right, of course. But, How could you not? Yeah. But I do um, air dry a lot of my clothes um, yeah. because the dryer sh causes them to shrink. And, and as you said, it wears the fabric, the fibers of the fabric down much faster. But something interesting happens with, with the lint. And, um, you know, you can begin to, in terms of forensic analysis, you can mm -hmm. begin to see commonalities when you look at um, colors. And so mostly with, with um, domestic lint, I've begun to see that there are many more colors, many more ranges of colors, and I can group them um, in, in more um, aesthetically delightful ways. Right. Um, 
whereas the lint that I'm working with from commercial spaces, um, while there's an aesthetic sense of curiosity, it's not as pretty. Um, And I like that contrast. Yeah, I, like that contrast a I lot. think that the commercial lint, there's something really sublime about it. It's mysterious. It looks sort of, you know, you can see how much sediment is in it. And it's kind of this unit, like this dark color. I was looking at that ramp piece that you did and you form the lint into kind of some tighter structures and some more loose. And I was looking at it and I, I came up with a lot of associations like you know i was looking at termite nests or wasps nests like hanging from the nets but i also when i was looking at the ramp i started thinking about like gray matter and you had a really great quote which i can't quite place i I watched an earlier interview of yours this is actually before you were working with the lint um you said something about you were using like a printing process where you were making all of these layers oh polymerist was it, did I say something about palimpsest? Because I, I know that that's something that's been a part of my working vocabulary for some time. Can you explain that for? So, I mean, I'm interested in, you know, again, as an archaeologist, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in calling attention to um, layers of information yeah. that occur over time. And visibly and as well as subconsciously, I'm, I'm always thinking that way. I don't think that a work ever needs to be finished. Um, as an artist, I don't feel that a work needs to be finished. Yeah. Um, I think that a work evolves over time just as we do as human beings. And there's always information to be discovered and to be illuminated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think at that time I was working with mostly on paper. And what I would do is, is build surfaces. Um, for, for instance, um, I've built on paper surfaces with um, oil stick and it's quite laborious um, yeah. because I would draw into, I, I would um, create multiple layers and draw into those layers and then let them dry. And then I would erase those layers or some aspect of the layer and then draw into it again and then build another layer on top of it. And sometimes I would add different surfaces. Sometimes I would add a new material. I'm, I'm interested in what that information that layering of information looks like askew yeah so if if you like if you're looking at the pages of a book yeah what does it look like from the side rather than frontal oh that's so interesting yeah and i saw that you um related to that you had like found frames that were like not flat on the wall they were sort of perpendicular to the wall with the frames, I'm again. I'm I'm interested in just tilting um, the way we are used to looking at things. I, in my practice, try to think of new ways of seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the same thing, 
but tilted um, from uh, tilting the angle or the perspective because we're taught we, we learn to to see things um, from a certain perspective just as we learn to think about art making and we learn to think about what art is in the West I find that we preference the visual um, right and we we preference the pictorial yeah so I try, for instance, with the lint, one of the reasons I decided to work with that project is because I didn't want to make work. I wanted to make an installation, but I, I didn't want to make something. Um, I should also say that I wanted to shift from a material that I had been working with for a while, human hair. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to make a work that felt abject um, in its content, mm-hmm. um, but was um, something that was domestic or in, in the sense that it was not um, something that people thought of immediately in terms of their body, but it references their body in that their skin mm-hmm. is in theory, embedded in, in the lint. Although scientifically, I'm not sure if that's actually true because of the heat. Right. It, of, it, well, the dryer. it might be some residue of the skin, but the DNA might the be The DNA damaged, is right? damaged, yes. Um, so let me just say at this point, so there was actually, um, and I don't remember her name, um, she is um, someone who's in the forensic department here um, oh, at cool. UNH. Um, I met with her about a year ago. So we had a nice conversation about DNA, and she she clarified a few things for me in terms of how, uh, whether or not there's actually any information available in in the lint. And there really isn't a lot of information that we can um, discern. Um, Mm -hmm. With hair, it's mostly um, animal hair. Um, but with humans, unless the root of the hair is intact, um, we wouldn't be able to discern much about the DNA. Interesting. Um, but we can begin to, in terms of forensic research, we can begin to um, discern things like um, the propensity of one color over another which allows us to see, for instance, or speculate on whether or not this particular batch of, of lint that I'm working with, um, that, that household, what, what colors they tend to, to work with. I, I found that to be an interesting way to think about the lint as well. And so tell me about what's important about that to you. Well, I'm always interested in, you know, trying to figure out something about the individuals because, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason I like collecting a lot of these things is because I believe that they're largely invisible, but they Mm -hmm. are not really invisible. There's the everydayness about them that, that is a draw for me. And I think when we're able to accumulate enough of a material, um, enough lint from a particular household, um, we can then begin to compare households. Yeah. Um, there may be more blue or more red um, in certain households. And then we can begin to see what sorts of things, what, what sort of common practices, um, repetitive practices are, are occurring in those households. 
Um, so if, if I were to move forward with forensic analysis, those would be some of the things that I would be looking at, trying to discover things that otherwise would be invisible. Yeah. Um, and so let's say you discovered like this certain household, they really like, you know, blue clothing. What kinds of things would you start to wonder about that household? Well, I would wonder why so much blue and not other colors. Yeah. Um, I mean, one could speculate, is it related to gender? Is it mm -hmm. related to occupation? Is it related to um, location? Absolutely. Climate? Um, you know, it could be lent from two different families in the same town, but they could live in different parts of that town. Yeah. Um, and so those are some of the things that one could begin to And so explore. it's gender, it's all sorts of kind of cultural signifiers. Well, cultural production and again. Cultural, yeah. It's, it's about cultural production. And so even though the, the lint from domestic spaces tends to be cleaner, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's less dust or less sand and... Um, residue, commercial residue. Um, I mean, I, I haven't found jewelry and things like that in right. the lint that, that I'm getting from individuals. Um, and it could be that they're taking it out before they send it to me um, because people That's a possibility send it for from sure. all over the world. But what, what kinds of places do you get it from? I mean, like where in the world? Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, well, the states, around the states. Around the states. Interesting. Um, Kentucky. I, I just got package two days ago from Baltimore. Wow. Um, California, D.C., um, Florida. Um, and it's, it's mostly people I know um, mm -hmm. or people who have heard about my project. Um, but a lot of people um, in Connecticut drop off lint at my studio. They um, open studios. I, I'm at 909 Whaley Avenue. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, any any so, listeners who want to uh, donate some lint? Uh... Second Saturday of every month, um, the building is open for open studios, West River Arts. Um, you can drop off dryer lint outside my studio door if I'm not there, but I tend to be there yeah. um, from around noon till five. You know, cultural production is, you know, I think there are different ways of interpreting what that means. I feel like you're intentionally leaving that maybe open-ended because there are different kind. you know, there's, there's like mass production from clothing companies there's there are smaller local ways of producing culture well i i think largely i i'm interested in ways of looking at cultural production through waste through yeah through, through the residue yeah what's left over what we decide is no longer valuable um, and i think that that is really interesting just because we don't think of like, we're not like, oh, you know, like, let's go to the dump and get the th stuff we produced, right? We think of products as like wrapped in nice, shiny plastic or something, you know what I mean? That you get at the store or a lot of people think that way, but like cultural production is the well, stuff, everything, the dirt, the grime that we leave behind, you know. Well, again, yeah. like an archaeologist, I think that what is left behind it's, it's, if you think of a time capsule, 
um, if if you if I were to bury some things that are you know con- that reference contemporary culture, um, and a hundred years from now go back and dig it up, that's equivalent to what I'm doing mm-hmm. in that I'm finding things that are buried or discarded today, and I'm calling attention to them, mm-hmm. referencing them as everyday sort of prosaic aspects of, of who we are. Um, and I think that's as important as something that you could buy um, today right. um, as a form of cultural production. Because ultimately, whether you buy it or um, I find it on the street, it's still culture. It's some aspect of cultural production. It, um, it, it's just that I'm more interested in the waste um, yeah, not so much that we're overproducing, although that is um, something that I'm I'm referencing as well. Yeah, um, but not so much because I am looking at the shards. I'm mm-hmm. looking at the fragments, the broken pieces, mm-hmm. like a, a coffee cup that that may have broken. Well, you can't use the the cup if it's it's in shards. Right. Um, but it is something that referenced a moment in time. It, it's something that that referenced production in, yes. at a certain um, point in time. And it seems like, or it doesn't seem like, there in other cultures, people are also they are less wasteful than us or some of them are but are getting more wasteful as time goes by but they're confronted by the discarded things that they use in a more visceral immediate way maybe than americans who everything that's discarded is sort of hidden from us like we throw it out and it gets taken to the dump and we don't see it it's almost like we don't see you know cows getting slaughtered we buy a nice package of it you know at the supermarket well, I, I, th- I think the way we think about waste in the West, um, in, in Western culture, has a lot to do with cultural production being this hyper production since modernism. Yeah. You know, we, we create, modernism is all about creating more so that you can sell more. Um, and so the more you make, the more money you make. Um, and the right. more people will buy, especially the cheaper it is. Um, at one time, a lot of products were not available to, based on your, your social economic status. Yes. But we, we now live in a moment where most things are available um, based on economy of scale. And mm-hmm. that means that we tend to waste things. I mean, even with clothing, I mean, we... we we were talking about how the fabric may wear down faster through the dryer, but people aren't paying as much for the clothing. Um, so mm-hmm. we're using um, synthetic um, fabrics. And, and that's something that becomes apparent through um, um, forensic analysis as well. What type of materials are we looking at? What type of fabrics are people wearing? Um, and so I would be very interested, for instance, to look at um, the fibers and um, look at whether or not they're man-made fibers or, or natural fibers. Yeah. Um, because I think that speaks to, to one's social status um, to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and I say to some degree because, you know, one may not have a lot of money but still insist on, on wearing all cotton. Right. Um, or, right, or, sure. or real uh, non-man-made fabrics. Right. 
Um, I was going to say something else, but I, I lost my That's all right. My you, you're allowed to lose <laughs> the thought. But you were talking about different people of different socioeconomic statuses, perhaps wearing different clothing, perhaps not, depending on what their value system is, what they value in their lives more than something else. So right? I, I mean, we live in a bling society. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, and I think that largely determines what a lot of people do wear and, and how they go through their, their clothing so quickly. And a lot of people may own lots of things, so they don't really think about losing buttons on, on a shirt that, that may be a favorite shirt or even losing the shirt or losing, you know, when, when I'm finding undergarments in, in, in with, with the lint. I, I wonder, you know, don't people miss some of these things? Yes. But again, the reason I'm focusing on some of these materials or, or this type of materiality is because it does reference um, the invisibility yet visibility of, of the, the things. Yeah. And I put them in installation spaces so that people can hopefully um, feel a visceral connection to the, the stuff yeah. that they're encountering. So with, with the dryer lint, um, I've, you know, tried to, to make these, these forms that are not so much anthropomorphic, but they, in, in size and scale, they reference the human body. I was just going to ask you about that, so I'm glad that you brought it up. Your work is embedded with meaning. You think a lot about the substances and the possibilities of the substances, and you think about the invisible. But there's also an element of creating forms and creating shape and creating an environment. And you've sort of talked about that a little bit, but how do you go about creating an environment? What are you thinking about when you're doing it? Is it planned out? Is it spontaneous? I think it's usually planned out. Um... And I do put a lot of thought into what I want the form to look like. So with the lint, I've varied the forms um, based on the installation. And I think about placement of those forms. I think about size. Um, for instance, with the, the show that was at um, Washington Art Association mm -hmm. recently, yeah. I, I I don't have a space available. Maybe one will become available, but yes. I'd like to do a large installation with um, that full collection. That would be great. We'll see what happens. In well, the I will say that um, I read that you said something, and this is before you were working on this particular body of work, and this is a concern that a lot of sculptors have. Uh, the idea of things existing in space, like not flat things, things in, in three-dimensional space. And you had an interesting statement of you want someone to have to walk around. Yeah. Like you, you're That's... not like, I want them to see it from all directions. You're like, I want this to obstruct somebody's path. Right, like Richard Serra. <laughs> yeah. But what's that about to you personally well, as an artist? A lot of my sculptural installation work comes from thinking about human bodies mm -hmm. and, and other forms mm -hmm. um, that, that we as human beings interact with um, in space because we're all navigating spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and one, one way of thinking about it would be a forest. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there are trees in the forest that you have to walk around mm-hmm. um, in order to get the full sense of the forest and the space where, where you are, your presence and your relationship to, to that object. And I, I, so I like making works that force the spectator to, um, to be in a one-to-one relationship with that thing, if only for that moment. And, and hopefully thereafter, there'll be some, some memory, some lingering memory. Mm. But I think just as you and I are sitting across from each other, we're, we're each objects, we're sculptural forms sure. within this space. And I think that that's a way for people to, um, to think about their own existence, um, their own body, their own sense of identity and uh, in, in relation to that other thing. That's, that's what I'm, I'm always trying to um, draw out, this visceral sense of being um, in that moment. And, and I, I subconsciously always think about these things when I'm working on an installation mm-hmm. um, because the materials change. Um, but I collect materials and then at some point figure out how I'm going to use them. I'm working on a show for the fall and I don't want to give away too much about the show. But, um, some of the forms, the materials that I'm working with, I'm, I'm now grappling with uh, how I want to position them within the space, whether or not they are on the floor or, um, suspended um, whether or not it's, it's a flat form or um, an L-shaped form or it has multiple dimensions to it, uh, what the height is, um, whether or not I want it to, to feel monumental, um, some of these forms that I'm working with, but there are different ways to approach monumentality. And I also think about creating structures that don't feel um, hyper-masculine, mm-hmm. um, but they could. Um, there's, there's something masculine. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm interested in creating forms that, that um, don't necessarily have a gender bend. Um, there's there's a, a fluid sense of it not being clear whether or not it's it's a male or female right. artist and they have a little bit of a like an eva hessa kind of feel well, one of to my them favorite artists in that you can't you know like eva hessa's work you can't sort of install it exactly the same way each time it's contingent upon space right, right. um it's not like you come in with like a marble sculpture you know, that's ready to be put on a pedestal or well, placed, you know. And I do like installing on site. Yeah. Um, because I, I tweak things as I'm in the space. I mean, I, I may come into the space um, with a set of parameters about mm-hmm. what the work is supposed to do in that space. But depending on the space, um, I, I may shift the work in a way um, that surprises me um, because I see something happening in the space that I was not aware of. Right. Um, I don't always visit a space beforehand, but I try to 
um, increasingly, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I am aware of the space um, as I'm making the work in my studio, unless it's a work that could, in theory, um, be installed a multitude of ways, um, and I can wait until I get to the space to see how I'm going to do that. I wanted to ask you about your use of the grid. It was important to you as an artist, maybe like a decade ago or, or less, but the grid was important to you. These things seem to completely break out of the grid. And I, I want to just, why was the grid important to you and how did you go about undoing yeah. that? So, I, I mean, at, at that time, um, I was, and I, I still do admire the work of Saul LeWitt. Yeah. Um, but I think... Th- I, I think that I'm still interested in grids, but mm-hmm. I'm interested in grids that I um, can dismantle. Mm-hmm. Unmaking is is important to my process. Um, so starting with an idea and and then veering away from that because I, I while well, I'm interested in grids in terms of structure, mm-hmm. but I don't feel that structure needs to be limited or contained. Um, I want to open structure up so that now what's important to me, particularly if I work with a grid formation as part of the structure, I also allow spectators to enter the work. Yes. And uh, can you elaborate on that a little? What do you mean by enter the work? Well, with an installation, for instance, um, the one that you um, saw on my site, uh, mm-hmm. with the lint, mm-hmm. um, there were mirrors. I saw that, in, yeah. In the space. And so rather than working with a, a grid formation, I shifted to structure that um, um, injected randomness. Mm-hmm. Um, so there can still be randomness within a grid. I mean, the grid is the outline. Um, and then within the, that, that structure, I started shifting, tilting things so that nothing was on a straight angle. So I may start with that formation, that grid formation, but then I start tilting and, and juxtaposing things in unexpected ways, even ways yes. that I wouldn't start out thinking about. But I, as I walk through the space, as I navigate the space, I think of a new way of allowing spectators to experience it. And the mirrors really are a way to allow the spectator to see themselves in the space, um, kind of like a heterotopic space, mm. this sort of otherworldly mm-hmm. space where it's it's real in that it's it's tangible, but it's it's not real in that it's a space. I mean, it's not real that one would ever encounter so much drier lint. Right, um, right, and 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 it forces them to sort of see themselves in this kind of alternate reality. Reality. I don't really like that word. It's taking a bad rap, but it is still a word. Um, yeah. What would you use instead of alternate reality? Heterotopic space. Heterotopic yeah. space. Can you tell me what heterotopic means? I I feel kind of so, dumb because so it's 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 a space of otherness yeah. where you can see that. You can see yourself in relationship to otherness. It's a Foucault term. Yeah. Um, like um, a prison would be a real space, but mm-hmm. um, unless 
I mean, well, even if you are there, it's, it's, it's not a real, real space. It's not a normal space. It's an abnormal space. Right. Um, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm thinking of spaces that are real, but I'm shifting the context so that they're, they're, um, they're not quite hyper real, but they're otherworldly real. Continuing on with this idea of the grid, were you putting the hair pieces and into a grid format? I have um, done that. Um, yeah, working with paper, sewing the hair into the paper, and and making a grid formation. You also work with banana skins that you bake in the oven, and I think at the Washington Art Association, they were somehow attached to a wooden. Paper. backing or a paper backing yeah they were Were they in a grid they started in a grid of formation um but, i think there's but, something really funny yeah. about putting this sort of floppy object into a grid you know because it's sort of referencing order but it's and it is in order but it's sort of disorderly in a funny way right like and that's part of the unmaking to yeah you know to start out a certain way in this initially it's starting out in this ordered formation and then just building it up in layers yeah um so that it becomes chaotic and you, you there's there's barely a semblance of this initial sense of order what um, do you like about chaos for the viewer or for yourself as an artist it's not so neat and pretty yeah um, and i try my darnest to not make anything pretty yeah um yeah I, I think that we live in chaos i mean that's that's a reality yeah um i I, I just think that it is, it's what I see in, mm-hmm. and it's, I make the work that I make because it's what I want to see. Yeah. It's, I, I, I like seeing chaos, but I like seeing structured chaos. Right. <laughs> um, you know, even the lint, the, the ways that I'm working with the lint um, are chaotic um, the formation that I use with, with the placement of, of the lint um you know, it's chaotic, but it's also structured. It's, yeah, it's that's thought out. That's very interesting because I now I'm thinking about the mirror pieces and what you're saying about having the viewer see themselves in uh, this sort of what's the word that you used? Uh, heterotopic. heterotopic space. The the order allows people to kind of have distance, even as they are sort of immersed in the space and experiencing it. It it allows them maybe to have a moment of like this exists when you're like it, it's consciousness raising right when when you're in the midst of an actual chaotic state it's very hard to sort out right it's hard to sort out where you stand in that chaotic space until you see yourself in the mirror yeah and and the mirrors were placed in different ways um some were close to the floor so you could only see your feet or your legs um and then there was a full mirror where you could see your full body and behind you was this this mound, this growing mound of, of lint that you could back up into and, and walk up on. So if you were to walk up that, that um, ramp, you could see parts of your body depending on where you're standing on, on that. Um, so whether you see your full frame or parts of your frame, you're um, becoming aware of your body in relation to the lint mm-hmm. 
much more than that space, much more than the white cube. I mean, the white cube essentially becomes invisible. Yes. Yeah. You're only identifying with, with the lint in, in that, that context. And I noticed that a lot of people were, um, from the photos from the exhibition in Baltimore, that there were a lot of people interacting with and actually really getting into contact with the lint and picking up pieces and... Sometimes even throwing it at each other. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just don't eat it. <laughs> Just don't eat it. Yeah, well, I, I remember very, I have a very visceral memory of when you installed your lint sculpture because I was installing in the same room and I just, it was like how many cats must have been in that lint, you know, making me sneeze and stuff. It was just a really, it was interesting just how consuming it was. Well, it's also toxic. Yeah. Um, you know, so when I'm working with it, I do wear a mask. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm apologetic. No, uh, don't worry about it. It's fine. Because, well, I, it, just so people are aware, um, and, and, and that's, that's the one thing that is an issue for me because I have asthma. Right. Um, I'm sensitive to people who have allergies because mm -hmm. I have allergies. Um, in Baltimore, I felt for the security guards because oh, yeah. they had to breathe the lint day in and day out. Um, and it, it made me think about that as a health concern. Yeah. What do you think it we is? Don't think about. I think there. it's I think it's just the combination of the, the residue of, of pet dander and and the dust yeah. that um, is generated from um, the fabric being broken down. The and fabric. some of it's artificial fat, you know, like plastic, right, right. dust. Um, but it makes you think about what's actually in the environment, in the air already. Right. Um, and so, again, it references the unseen. So I'm, you know, through that process of um, being in an environment with some, some odor mm -hmm. um, or even a sound, um, if, if there were a sound that um, is almost inaudible, but if, if you're in that environment day in and day out, you begin to pay attention to it. Yes. And so through the process of someone being, being forced to sit near the lint every day, um, they become much more aware of it. For me, the process of working with it daily, I became much more aware of it. You don't really notice it if, if you're just passing through or if you have limited exposure. But on a regular basis, you become much more aware of it um, because of that, that ongoing, that accumulated contact. So that's another way of thinking about the yeah. visibility. And you use as sort of a like a fixative of some kind. Spray starch. Spray starch. Yes. It, oh, you so you're just starching yeah, it I'm so just that starching it, it and that firm it up. Yeah, and, and to to keep the the dust from um, from moving in the air as much. Yeah. and also it smells good. Yeah, <laughs> let me see. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in in aromas as well. Um, I've done some recently, well, last fall, I did a project with hair burning. Oh, cool. Um, and I'd like to do more of that. And that's one of the directions I'd like to go in with the hair um, that I collect um, or have collected over the years um, to um, install it, um, just the hair burning itself. Um, so it would be a performative 
um, piece, but I'm, I'm interested in how people respond to the, the aroma of the hair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm, I'm interested in making work where people say, where is the work? I was thinking about my experience with your work and also your, the statement we talked about of like, you want people to have to walk around it. There's the abject quality of the material and, but it's kind of making the statement of like, look at me, like, don't ignore me. You know, like the, the dust kind of raising up, it's, it's sort of, you can't ignore it, right? It's environmental, it's sort of in your face, but at the same time, it's not a bright colored thing, but it's it's, sort of... It's gray matter. Yeah, it's gray matter, right? It's it's this in-betweenness. And it's also creating um, this relational sense of this thing um, that is considered worthless um, in relation to, to you, mm-hmm. um, especially in a white cube space. I mean, I, I, I find it really exciting to put this work in, in gallery spaces with, with other artists, um, who are doing, working in more traditional ways. Yeah. Um, because it, it sets up this, um, or it, it references this, um, unspoken binary, about high and low, about what yes. we value and what we don't value, and working simply with with something something as simple as residue, um, because that's all it is. That's mm-hmm. that's what the work is about. What's left? What remains after um, we or what remains after we discard something? Um, in a sense, the memory of the thing remains. Um, but sometimes even the memory can fade. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wanted to also ask you just about when did you come to art? I mean, when, when did you decide, I want to be an artist, and how did that happen? That's a good question. Um, when did I come to art? Well, I've, I've been making art for most of my life. Um, I think the first thing that I made <laughs> that I would call... Uh, making um, was when I was a kid. I made something uh, a footstool. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, but I, I, when I was younger, I mean, I, I always painted and made drawings when I was younger. But I didn't feel that I was making the type of work that I wanted to make until much later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't um, commit myself to pursuing art making as seriously as I do now until much later, partly because I was drawn to this notion of um, art making as something that needed to be refined. Yeah. And my, my aesthetic was much more raw or is much more raw. Yeah. Not to say that um, I haven't made beautiful things, um, but um, I realized at some point that I was much more interested in um, the polymsis layers or, or what lies, the information um, that could be discovered beneath the surface yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, and that's why I work the ways that I do, because I'm, I'm less interested in the, the obvious um, information 
I'm, I'm much more drawn to trying to discover and help people see what we are taught not to see. It's been such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you stopping by the first stop. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you like the show, give us a good rating. And if you have a moment, write a review. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Bruce Barber, director of WNHU, for providing the resources and guidance to make this podcast possible.